Welcome everyone back to Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Today, we're talking with Phil. And Phil, even though I asked you just literally two seconds ago how to pronounce your name, I'm probably going to screw it up again yet. But Voltrauer? Voltrauer? Voltrauer, yeah. Voltrauer. Voltrauer. See, I did. Screwed it up again. But two Phil's. This is actually, no, this might be the second time in the history of Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. I did have another Phil on before. But welcome to the show, Chief Information Officer. And... You're in oil, is that correct? Uh, oil and gas, yeah. Oil and gas, you know. We don't say those are the same things over there, do we? No, no, no. It's <laughs> actually um, liquefied natural gas, but... Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. So, let's just start off with how long you been in IT? What was your first computer? Yeah, um, you know, interestingly, I got into IT. I started my career as a mechanical engineer. And um, my college roommate who works for Amazon told me I could probably walk circles around some of the folks where he was working. So he convinced me <laughs> to jump ship from uh, from mechanical engineer and into IT and call it like 97 or so. Okay. Why, why were you able to, well, 97, how much technology did we have back then? Uh, just paint Windows, a picture. Let's Windows just paint a picture. Was coming out. Yeah. I mean, like, um, how are you running circles around people or how could you have? Uh, I, I think it was just the state of IT at the time, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> you know, the, it was uh, it was if you had a pulse and you could spell uh, Microsoft, then you probably could get a job in IT. So uh, it wasn't too hard for me, uh, you know, being technically savvy to step into um, step into IT and learn how to do the basics. It was just um, simple support and sort of sysadmin stuff that we were doing at the time. So nothing too advanced. Mm-hmm. And uh, first computer was um, I had a Texas Instruments computer when I was a kid. My first real PC was a 386 SX that I got when I got to uh, to college in '92. Mm. Wow, two Phils had the same exact first computers. I had also a Texas <laughs> okay. Instruments with uh, cartridges that you would sho- shove on the side. It had that weird like like audio voice thing that you could like slide into the right side of it. See, oh yeah, yeah. Bill Cosby advertised for it. Um, let's see what else. And then my first computer was also a 386. Ordered it. Oh, interesting. Via some 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 catalog. Uh, but you were in college with your 386. I was in high school with my 386. So okay. The did you have any access to the internet with that thing? A modem? No, nothing. I didn't get internet access until a little bit later. I remember. Um, a buddy of mine actually showed, you know, we used to play this game called Magic the Gathering when I was in college. Uh, <laughs> it just came out. And um, and he showed me that you could go online and actually see the, all the cards and stuff and interact with the developers and whatnot. I thought it was the coolest thing on earth. So That's not nerdy ever, at all. That's not stereotypical no. or nerdy at all. <laughs> First time I got to it was, was actually um, text-based. And he showed me that you could actually render it in HTML with a with a um, like proper web browser, which I was like, "Whoa!" So it blew my mind. <laughs> oh, very cool, <laughs> or not cool? However, yeah. however we wanted to say that ba- back then. Uh, <laughs> the um, okay, so what made you want to get a job, or was it because I could get a job in IT and this is fun and? we can get paid for doing this type of stuff or what was it? Cause it's a big, it's a difference, a huge difference back then, you know, like 
like today it's real. Like back then it was like, yeah, it was like, it's happening. You know, like that type of thing. Like how mm-hmm. real was a job in IT back then compared to today? Uh, it was, re- it was definitely real. I mean, it was a lot harder to, um, to get your, your, get uh, to be um, proficient in IT uh, just because it was more complicated. It was more rudimentary. You know, when you were doing the stuff we were doing with um, you had to open up computers and mess around with, uh, with jumpers and, yeah, um, you had to work in DOS. You, you, were, you had to work in DOS and totally. stuff, and like, yeah, and like, yeah, put a network card in physically. Yeah, yeah, but the company that that I joined was, um, if you got your MCSE certification, which was, uh, you know, a reasonable difficulty level to do, then they bumped you to fifty grand a year right then and there, like next paycheck. And so for me, it was like, wow, I can make 50 grand a year. There's an argument for certifications. Does anything like that exist today? Does anything like that exist today? Because I have the argument a lot, do certifications matter? Like, do you really need certifications or could you just be like really skilled and awesome, like a ninja of some sort? Or I think uh, that was always the case, right? If you were just good at it, it didn't really matter. But um, but if, if you don't know someone, and uh, and you've got two candidates. Let's see for a role, and one of mm. them has a certification, and maybe one doesn't. Yep. Maybe it, it uh, you lean towards the one with the certification. I, I don't know. Yeah, and, I, you, um, and you might make the wrong hire. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so get a certification, bump to fifty thousand, which was considerable back then, which is amazing. Sure. That just goes to show you how I guess whatever fast inflation is because. Yeah. 97, 50 grand was, I mean, they were paying those pharmaceuticals. I just remember my dad, my dad's a doctor. So I remember pharmaceutical reps and I remember my dad saying, like, you know, you're going to get 40,000 right a year if you become a pharmaceutical rep. So if that was, <laughs> if that was a lot yeah. back then, then 50,000 for, uh, for, you know, IT guy was a lot. So. Oh yeah. The Being single making, making, uh, you know, decent money. I could buy a car. I could live on my own. I, I, uh, I was very independent at that point. Oh, so tell me how that, how that would, did that do well for you or bad for you? Because if I made, I, I have eight kids. So if I mm-hmm. made the amount of money that I make now in order to just put food on the table and keep the lights on and pay for diapers and clothing and all kinds of other stuff, right? And like mm-hmm. the washing machine that breaks every six months. <laughs> if I made the amount of money that I make now and I was single, I think that would probably destroy me. So yeah, just, uh, yeah, yeah. just I'm me, I'm just, that's just, I'm just yeah. kind of, you know, I, I'm just <laughs> thinking back then, like if I made that money yeah. back then. So, um, so I'm just curious, how did that, and I, and the reason why I ask is because there's different, um, people spend money and, and do, I guess things with money in, in some, I guess invest it well. And, and some don't like, uh, uh, you look at a lot of like salespeople that might do really, really on sales, but they have no money management skills. So mm-hmm. they kind of crash and burn where are you being an engineering minded guy? I, I imagine it might be the opposite. So what's your, what's your philosophy on, on, on saving or, or anything like that? I mean, at the time, I didn't know a whole lot about saving. I just, uh, <laughs> you know, I went from from uh, from cutting grass on a golf course to be working as a mechanical engineer, making very little. I think I was making you know, fourteen dollars an hour or something like that, uh-huh. and then uh, and then jumping to IT and making fifty grand a year. So I, I went from cutting grass to making fifty grand a year in the span of about a year. 
And so, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I just ran with it. I mean, it's still, I mean, it's not like a monumental amount of money. No. Don't get me wrong, even back then, but, um, but you but weren't starving. Got me, no, no, it got me to where I could at least, um, you know, go to the movies whenever I wanted to and, and, uh, not have to worry too much about where I went out to eat and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. At what point did you make uh, kind of a jump into the the leadership piece and a lot? I kind of want to just ask you at what point did you learn the business side of it? Yeah. Um, so I stepped into leadership just filling vacancies. You know, I had um, the fortune and misfortune of an organization that was going through a bankruptcy. And so people were jumping ship and there were, uh, there were holes to fill. And I've always had a little bit more of, you know, if you ask my group of friends, uh, I'm usually the one that they rally around. So I've always sort of had that in my DNA. And, mm. um, and so I was the obvious choice when, when some people started stepping out of supervisory roles and such to, um, to, uh, to formally take on more managerial responsibilities. And it just sort of went from there. Just, um, I decided to take it very seriously and, uh, and really invest in myself and in the leadership side of, of my skill set And, uh, and it paid off, you know, I, I, uh, I made sure that, um, that I, I wasn't just a technical person that I was able to, uh, to look at someone across the table and have, uh, you know, the types of conversations that you need to have, uh, in a role like that. So when you and say then, invest, I'm sorry, you had, there was a second part of your question. What was the well, second no, part of your question? Uh, who cares? Let's deep it. Let's, let's <laughs> dig into this one. Let's dig into this one. Cause this is much more important. When you said you invested in yourself and you took it very seriously, when you say invest, you mean training, reading books, going to conferences. What did you mean by that? You invested very heavily. All, in all of that. Yeah. All of that. And actually I had the, um, I had the, the opportunity to attend the, the society of information management has this, um, regional leadership forum that they do. And it's, it's a pretty awesome program. I don't know if they still do it or not, but back, um, I think I did it in 2005, something like that, where for two days, every month, they bury you in, um, this conference room or whatever in New York city. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you have to read a bunch of books and you have guest speakers come in and there's sort of, you know, round the table discussions. And it was just a, a two days of, of isolation with this um, group of people. There's probably about 25 of us um, aspiring leaders in, in various organizations. And it was incredibly impactful for me because I realized that I was actually uh, doing things through gut feel and not necessarily um, the way that, that it needs to be done. And, and that there is, um, you can formally train yourself and, and not just, uh, not just shoot from the hip when it comes to some of this. So, um, so a lot, a lot of reading, you know, uh, and, the, and, the two day um, isolation though, the two day isolation, mm -hmm. was it all information technology people? Yeah. Um, of varying, uh, technical levels. You mm -hmm. know, I would say that, um, you know, large organizations, what, what you would, um, call an IT person is probably, uh, not the same as it would be in a small organization. And so you had people really from all walks of life that were still were in these larger IT organizations, but they were doing things related to product management, project management. Right. Um, yeah. And so, so your question earlier was or like, when did I learn the business side of things? 
Um, I went and, and got an MBA and realized uh, that I it's just like I didn't know much about leadership. I didn't really know much about business. And so um, got an MBA and started to really retool myself from that perspective as well. Feed me some of the key points that you realized you didn't know, or what would you, what would you say the typical IT manager, IT director that might not have an MBA, what is he missing? Is he missing uh, what gross margin is? Is he missing how to read a PL? Is he missing what EBITDA is? What, what is he missing? Yeah, there's certainly a lot of that. I mean, if, you, if um, you know, IT's got a language, business has got a language, and so if you don't speak that language, you don't know what a, what a P&L is, for example, um, or what SGNA is, or some of these, uh, you know, every, every um, function has its own acronyms. And um, IT is notorious for having too many of them. <laughs> but uh, learning the acronyms, learning what EBITDA is, like you said, learning really what a balance sheet is, what a general ledger is, all these things. It's very difficult to partner with your colleagues in the accounting department or finance or whatever if they're using words that you don't understand. And so, um, so, and, and it's, it wasn't just that, you know, I, I think that um, early career IT people will make decisions based on the technical merit of those decisions. They won't necessarily make decisions based on the business merit of those decisions. And that's an important uh, leap to be able to take to say, okay, um, you could spend 50 grand on something and, and have this very elegant technical solution, but the business only really needs the, you know, the $12,000 version of it. And so let's not overthink it, right? Mm. What about the opposite? We, we do the 12,000 version, but really we need the $70,000 version and we can yeah. calculate the return on investment and other pieces that we're missing and add to the business and create more, I don't know, efficiency, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'd say that that's as much an art as it is a science when it comes to uh, convincing people to spend money. It, you know, comes down to who, who approves the, the money and um, and what resonates with them. Mm. I deal with CFOs a lot. And so with CFOs, it's very simple. You know, when you come to, um, to other functions, uh, defining value is a lot more difficult because you really ultimately have to frame things in terms of how they need, which, which problems they need to solve. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, then you're probably going to win. And, um, and people will spend the money that you need them to spend. Well, let's solve the simple CFO conversation first then versus the complicated mm-hmm. um, operations department selling on value or whatever. But what's the, what's the simple CFO conversation? Uh, <laughs> is it going to save money? Is it going to make money? If you can show <laughs> one of those two things, then you're good. You know, other functions, you need to show how it's going to improve functionality within the business or how it's going to, you know, provide regulatory compliance with this or that. But when you deal with CFOs and you say, hey, listen, if you spend 200 grand over the course of four years, it's going to actually save us 500 grand. Go. Or yeah. if, if, um, if we make this whatever $50,000 investment, uh, we're going to recoup that by adding $150,000 worth of revenue. Um, go. I mean, that's, that's usually how it works. Which one's Very easier? Simple. Which one's easier, the save money or make money? Uh, the save monies are easier for me. I think that if you have the right partner who's going to be behind you, you know, the make money stuff, uh, you really need to be partnered with somebody who's going to help make that happen. Saving money, um, usually you can do without a whole lot of help. At least that's been my experience. And when you say partner, do you mean partnered internally with another team, like partnered internal yeah. team partner? Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, my my roles, I've always had to be the Switzerland of every organization. You have to mm. you have to um, to be friends with everyone. You have to be partnered with everyone. You have to make sure that you understand what you, each of the functions, what makes them tick, what's driving them, what their goals are, how those goals um, align with the organization's goals, and uh, how how do you get them from point A to point B? I love the Switzerland piece. Do you know who Jay Abraham is? Uh, sounds he's, he's familiar, like one of the coaches no. for like some of the Shark Tank guys and everything. He's just he's like a just like a, a business mogul or something. He called me the Switzerland of telecom a couple of years ago. <laughs> I liked that. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah I that? had a um, I had a friend in high school. You know, when Facebook first came out, um, and I connected with a guy, and he said, "Yeah, you were always like Switzerland in high school," and I've always <laughs> used that analogy to uh, you know whenever I need to to demonstrate that somebody is. Uh, sort of independent of, of the politics, which I try and be. Okay. So to summary, summarize so far, we go into engineering, realize we're not going to do that, go into IT, and then just start filling holes and gaps when um, companies are going bankrupt and people are, are jumping ship. So you're just going to take whatever role opens up. This is how we grow in the IT world. Uh, that's part one. Uh, part <laughs> Part two is, which is really not far off from the number of people that I have interviewed and spoken to over the years. It's pretty much that it's, I worked in the mm-hmm. cafeteria and I started talking with the it guys. So I got a job at the help desk and then I worked <laughs> my way up from there. <laughs> that is a true story yeah. uh, all the way, all the way to, um, CTO. I literally started out in the cafeteria and went all the way to CTO. That is a true story. That was a uh, Doug Edmonds yeah. summit design, but wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it's it was a terrifying funny. thing though. I mean, um, <laughs> being a mechanical engineer and spending my college years studying that and thinking that's what I'm going to be. I, um, the, the organization, when I joined, they gave me a, an assessment and one was windows 95 and they gave me 50 questions or something. And one of them was windows NT uh-huh. and I didn't know any of the windows NT stuff at all because I had never, you know, <laughs> I, I was, um, I was a hobbyist. So I have windows 95 on my home computer. I didn't have windows NT. It's that's mm-hmm. what you find in the corporate world. So mm-hmm. I had to, I had to, uh, to ramp up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And, um, thankfully I, um, you know, it, when, when you join a consulting firm, you get the opportunity to do stints at lots of different organizations, which my first <laughs> IT role was was um, as a consultant. Yep. And so in a three or three and a half year span, I had consulted for call it uh, maybe 30 different organizations and mostly nice. big pharma. So you get exposure to the world of IT. Everyone else has screwed and, up uh, stuff everywhere. So it's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you get to see how they all do it and then you can pick and choose what works and what doesn't. I mean, to me, when I, when I stepped into my first non-consulting gig and had a full-time role in an IT department at a company, bringing all that with me just made me a superhero to these folks. I was solving problems that they, uh, they didn't even know they had in some cases. Mm, I like it. It's kind of like the Phoenix Project a little bit. Have you, yeah. read, have you read that? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, great book. I, you know, I've been trying to just listen to the audio. I have no, it's so long. I mean, talk yeah. about putting the work into it. It's like 24 hours or something like that. I thought, oh, I'll be able to bang this out from, uh, you know, driving. I had to drive from Connecticut to Baltimore. I was like, oh, I'll be able to bang this mm-hmm. out. I drove all the way there, all the way back. Still got 13 hours left. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I did the audio for it as well. And, um, I don't remember how long it took, but when you have an hour and a half commute, you can you can churn through books pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The okay, so was there? So you're the Switzerland where 
uh, CFO is easy. Save money, make money. If you can do that. What if you can't do either, but you need it? How's that argument go? There's got to be some way. Well, There's got to be some sort of yeah. uh, make money, save money somewhere in there. there actually, yeah, there I mean, always you, is. Everything is going to translate to that. So there, there always is. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's more difficult to articulate in some cases, and so. You know, uh, to me, I've always divided the portfolio of work that IT does into two buckets. There's things that are driven by the business and there's things that mm-hmm. are driven by IT. And so the things that are driven by IT, um, a lot of those investments, um, you know, I use, I use a scoring model basically. And so the scoring that I do for business driven projects is a little different than the scoring that I do for IT driven projects so that everything could kind of live on the same list, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so when it comes to the IT stuff, um, I found that developing credibility um, around the business, when you then say you need something to invest in your own function, you don't get a whole lot of pushback. At least that's been my mm. um, experiences that I've had extremely supportive um, CFOs that, um, and, and CEOs in, in some cases that have uh, that have understood that I'm not going to ask for it unless I really need it. And so, so knock a bunch of quite, wins, quite too much. knock a bunch of balls out of the park first, then ask for what you want. Yeah. Yeah. For get sure. It, yeah, uh, get everyone you, else what they want. You, then, then, then you can ask you for can, <laughs> Yeah. If you can show that you're responsible with, with the money. Um, I've found that if I manage my budget meticulously mm-hmm. and in fact, try and be the person who is, leading the charge amongst all the functions of who really has the most control over their budget, mm-hmm. then that will resonate typically with, you know, your CFOs, your CAOs, whoever is sort of uh, responsible for that process. And word gets around that, um, that, that that's in your, your tool belt. So and that coupled with the fact that a lot of what I do is, is negotiation with vendors. And so, developing a reputation for managing vendors very effectively also helps because uh, they might come to you and say, Hey, listen, we're talking to so-and-so and they're posing this thing for 400,000. 400, and in my gut, I'll say, well, that probably is a $280,000 project that yeah. they want to sell you for 400,000. I might be able to get them to 280 and they're like, Whoa, we need him involved in everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. So manage the budget meticulously, translate that budget into business language from it language, i.e. Um, back to balance sheets and and uh, general ledgers and and all that type of stuff, correct? And does it does it sound about right? Does it sound about right as far yeah, as how yeah, we do this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the scoring model is very interesting to me, but I I'm very intrigued with this. I'm, I'm still back on this two day isolation kind of like a Navy SEAL IT like mm-hmm. lock you up in a room type of thing. I I really like this idea. And, yeah. So um, let me tell you how it worked. Yeah. It, it was um. They gave you a list of books you had to purchase before the program began. It was like forty books or something. I thought, what? oh my goodness, you know this, this nine-month program. How? What kind of books were they? Books? Just get, knock a few of these out real quick. What kind of books were these? It was it was um, anything and everything you could think of. The first book they actually asked you to read is a book called How to Read a Book, and it's probably <laughs> the worst book I've ever read in my life. But uh, but it helps you. To uh, to get through the other thirty nine or whatever. But, um, to, okay. We read the, yeah. The Pearl by Stein, by Steinbeck. We wow, read I read that in like called, seventh grade. I remember that. Okay, cool. Weird. Yeah. Um. We we read a book called Crucial Conversations. I mean, remember that? Um. There was a book by a um a Nazi uh, 
um, prison camp survivor. And he sort of spoke about, um, I, I forget the name of the book now, but actually that was one of the most impactful ones for me. But it was all these different um, takes on leadership. And uh, and we would then talk about it and talk about how we could apply it and stuff. I, um, mm. I, it, was, it was a great program. You know, people would discover themselves through this process. <laughs> and like there was one program, they, the, um, there was two gentlemen, they were both- Oh, wait, are, wait a second. Are you talking about Man's Search for Meaning? Was that the book? Man's yeah. Search for Meaning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I read that yeah, too. Oh, yeah. Amazing, amazing. You know, that's like- Amazing, where, right? No, yeah, because no one, and the whole like point of that book is like, no matter what people do to you, no matter what they're, whether they're torturing you and putting you through everything, right? No one can really steal your freedom because you always have the ability to choose how to respond to any given situation. Totally. Totally, yeah, yeah. totally, totally. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Yeah, um, yeah that's an that, uh, amazing book. Amazing book. That's some Tony Robbins stuff kind of there, although he's- a little so, bit of a charlatan. And th- there was, there was a lot of that. Um, but some of it was, I mean, everyone's a little different. And so, you know, every session we'd go in having had to have read four or five books and I was, I was meticulous about it. I would make sure some people didn't read them, uh, but some people <laughs> did, you know, I took it very seriously. And so how do you read 40 I books in two that, days or was it well, well, well ahead of time? It, it was, it was about five per session. And it, um, it was, I think nine different, um, it was nine different sessions or, you know, every month we would get together. So each month you would basically have to turn through four or five, which came out to gotcha. a book a week. And some mm. of them you could do in two days and some of them, 220 pages was your typical sort of, uh, um, typical reading. And so, mm. you know, whatever long, however long it takes someone to read 220 pages. Now it, I'd probably just do it all on audio, but back then that wasn't really an option. So, yeah, um, but, but people were, were coming out, um, with all sorts of, uh, you know, talking about their marriages. I mean, it started to really impact people beyond just the workplace. This, um, this process of, of discovering your leadership style is really not, not so much about anything other than discovering who you are. So tell me, so why, so you mentioned the marriage thing. Why, you know, what, obviously that hits home with something, but you know, what, what do you mean? Yeah. Well, so, um, I mean, for me personally, I, um, I told myself I want to be the best. I always want to be the best at what I do, but you realize like, am I being the best dad? Am I being the best husband? You know, it, it, it was more than just applying it to the workspace. And so mm. you start to realize that you're a lot more accountable for how things are going than maybe you were, um, you were admitting to yes. prior to that. And so, you know, to me, effective leadership is as much, about um, owning up to things and just being as real as possible and not, to, you know, not um, pretending to be something you're not. If you can be incredibly authentic as a leader, I think that's really, really powerful. And those are usually the, the people that get um, people that will follow them from one organization to the next are the ones that are really, truly authentic leaders and, and are not, uh, not trying to fake it. They're not yeah. pretending Yep. Accountability, responsibility, the ability, the ability to choose your response. You, you can, you can do that. I tell my kids that a lot. So the, you have a scoring model and you realize from this that there really is like leadership isn't just kind of like shooting from the hip. There, there can be some organization to this. 
What are, when you say organization, are you talking like ITIL type stuff? Is any of that important? Or when it comes to kind of managing IT in general, is there any kind of like philo- like philosophy or methodology or anything like that that you're using? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think ITIL is applicable in just about every IT organization. If um, but you got to pick and choose what works. Same with um, with project management, right? Some organizations um, can be very rigorous, and other organizations are a little bit looser or even treat, you know, formal project management with disdain in some cases. So, mm-hmm. um, so you just have to, to pick and choose what works for you and for your business and run with that. Uh, um, I definitely, ITIL to me is uh, a framework that I, I, um, I use for any and all the process engineering I do and sort of framing the business to, to or framing IT to the business as well. So, um, but there's others out there. I, I um I think that as you can as you go, you pick and choose what works and you sort of uh would you say it's not work. rocket science or it is rocket science? Like what what's the best way to to project manage in your opinion? Uh I I think that for people that are not um trained or don't have experience as project managers, it's very much rocket science. In fact, I've I tried to teach somebody once the very basics of time management um, and just sort of making sure that they weren't overcommitting on the different projects that they were involved with. Mm-hmm. And he referred to it as linear algebra to me, which I thought, well, it's, I, I mean, to me, it just seems so simple, you know, but, uh, but, but well, well, please, people are you got to break that down for me. You got to break that down for me. So what was this person doing then? Well, he was a network engineer. And so, um, in smaller IT organizations, you know, this particular organization had 30-some odd people, and so he was in high demand. And so he had to be really meticulous. We, we would carve up our work in two-week sprints, a la the you know, agile methodology. And so uh, every two weeks, he had to be fairly meticulous with the commitments that he made to make sure that he was giving everyone what they needed. And he just, um, like the tool set, you know, some people are, are wired to go in straight lines, and some people... Uh, are not wired that way. They they can't go in straight lines. They um, their their superpowers that they can flip things over and look at it a bunch of different ways before they actually attack it uh, an issue. So, um, you know, I've always had the ability to break things down down into smaller and smaller components and take um, pro- you know plan projects by just chunking it up and taking the boulder and turning it into the rocks and taking the rock and turning it into pebbles and take the pebble. And turn it into yeah, uh, yeah. the grains of sand, you know? Uh-huh, yeah. Who do you think, where do we rip all this stuff off from? You know what I mean? Because everyone steals everyone's idea. You know, the, the pebbles, the boulders, the, the two-week sprints, the 90-day the ninety day planning session. Who knows? Do you know what I mean? It's like a, just a different iteration. <laughs> yeah. It's just someone that just puts a different stamp on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yep. it's, um. anyways. I'm just, yeah, there's stuff, I, there's stuff I've borrowed. There's stuff I thought I came up with on my own. And then I found it in some books somewhere. And I <laughs> thought I was really... <laughs> really super bright for uh, for having thought of it first, even though that's not true. <laughs> so, who knows? Um, linear algebra. That's um, yeah. that scares me. To be honest with you, the yeah, you're, it you're, wasn't linear algebra. I can assure you, it was, <laughs> well, a, it was an undisciplined um, undisciplined approach to the work. Which unfortunately, uh, when you try and impose discipline on people that have been able to get away with just being really smart and not having to be very disciplined, then uh, it can be really painful for people. Mm. It sounds like I could go through a lot of pain. I could go through a lot of pain with you. (laughs) 
I have, if I look at my, if I look at my linear algebraic, I, I, I sat down and had to put my, I use these manila folders, you know, for like mm-hmm. goal setting and, and taking notes. Cause I took this, like how to take, I was a horrible student, horrible student for years. And really what I realized is that I just had no, I had no study skills. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I take these, I, I started taking these study skills and, and learning things later on in life because I just, I love the idea of being able to memorize things and, and put things into better organizations. So mm-hmm. anyways, I can't remember the guy off the top of my head, but basically he uses these manila folders whenever he goes anywhere to like a movie. I got, I got, I got I'm going to have to look it up and put it in the show notes. But wherever he goes, he takes notes on these manila folders because they're A, stiff and hard and uses different colored Sharpie pens to like take notes on them. It works amazing. Yeah. Um, Anywho. And he always leaves the left side of every notebook blank. So he takes all his notes on the right side. And then he goes back through and he uses memorization techniques on the left side, on the blank side to read to then. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Are you into any, have you studied any memorization techniques? Like, you know, uh, what's wrong with me? Like the, the, the memory palaces and stuff like that. No, um, so I me- probably should have. Yeah, so like I, a memory palace is like, a, it's like if you go through like a, I don't know, like your house that you grew up in as a kid and you visualize it, you can probably visualize all the rooms or even just your house now or, or outside. You can visualize different places, right? So you place the things uh-huh. that you want to memorize in this palace, in this memory palace as you go through. That's the short story of it. But if you just Google memory palaces um, and just different memorization techniques, like, you know, acronyms and stuff like that, that's basically what you would uh-huh. use the left side of the notebook for to to basically input things and then there's ways to memorize names as well like i'll never forget an alan because i always remember an alan was when the big alan wrench coming out of his head like shooting up (laughs) into the sky so like i'll never forget even my kids use it now they're like oh alan wrench our neighbor (laughs) like that's like like, his name's not alan wrench his name is alan (laughs) and they're like so they they start calling him alan wrench anyways um diverge off of topics here for a moment. Um, the scoring model. Did you make it up yourself or did you rip it off from someone and kind of redo it yourself? Is there any, any suggestions here on scoring models for different things? Uh, um, I loosely based it on some work that I had done with actually Capgemini, um, but have since flipped it on its head so many times that it probably doesn't re- resemble anything even close to what we worked on there. But um, it's uh, it's simple. It's five different categories of ways that you could um, that you could determine that the value of an initiative, and each one of them, you just give it a number from zero to to four. Is it <laughs> um, if it's a zero, then no impact in that particular category. Mm. If it's a mm. if it's a four, then maximum impact, and then you just have some math. You, you weight the different um, the different categories. Yeah. Uh, off you go simple spreadsheet is it in a spreadsheet yeah 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 just basic excel hmm. maybe you want to share it if you do we'll, we'll put it we'll, we'll it'll be a download but um sure. what are your five categories uh so the first one is will it make money the second one will it save <laughs> money <laughs> yes the third one is um it will it add um some sort of customer satisfaction to uh csat score of some sort okay yeah exactly um or will it improve the capabilities in some way um and the fifth one is is it going to um achieve or solve some sort of regulatory some sort of compliance thing 
Mm. Socks, something. I don't know. PCI compliance, something. Compliance. Will it make yeah, us more secure? Or, I mean, I, secure? Will it make us more I, secure? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if you're dealing with oil and gas, there's all sorts of regulatory stuff that goes on with environmental and that kind of thing, too. So mm. um, stuff you can't ignore. Plus security and, and uh, cybersecurity stuff is now starting to become um, regular, regulated as well. So I didn't get to the rest of that part. I, I'm assuming in the, the Phoenix Project, something's going to happen to the security guy, John. All I know is that John gets crapped on. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> there was like, don't remember. He was like, why does no one care about security? No one reads my emails. I see. I know you don't read my emails because when I call you about it, I get the read receipt right as I'm talking to you about the email. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I don't remember. It was, it was exactly that. That's exactly the point, I think. But anyways, we'll have to we'll have to have a, a secure. Do you guys have a CISO? Uh, no. <clears throat> so it's you. Uh, sort of. Um, <laughs> I, we do it by committee. Okay. Okay. So a committee of tech technology people, or a committee of what? Uh, it's, it's technology people. Yeah. Um, not necessarily all in it though. Okay. I gotcha. And what's your, what's your general take on, on security nowadays? And obviously like, you know, you have the basics, like, you know, you have the human factor obviously, but, Mm -hmm. uh, just in general from, you know, 96, no one cared. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that you can go as far with it as you want to. And depending on who you're dealing with, um, they'll take it far further than maybe is even necessary. You know, for me, uh, cybersecurity is something that you want to make sure that you don't ever have any sort of holes. But other than that, shouldn't necessarily overinvest in because you can uh, really, really overinvest if um, if you're not careful. You know? In other words, make sure the business doesn't go down in a burning inferno due to a security leak, but don't over secure so much that it's slowing things down and hurting the business and, and yeah, slowing process. Down. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's these sliding scales, right. Of, of, um, no security to maximum security. And I think that the organizations <laughs> that, that need that the highest of highest levels of security are probably much less than maybe the it people that, um, mm. think the sky is falling all the time. Mm. Uh, this has been a pleasure. The, for anyone out there, listening, growing up in IT now, what would be, what's your, you know, when you think back about it, what's your, what would be your biggest piece of advice? If you, if you were a mentor, you had, you know what I mean? People underneath you, what's, um, what's kind of like your, your biggest, your tagline or piece of advice that that you're often giving out or finding yourself thinking about? Yeah. I, um, I think that people underestimate and people get into IT oftentimes because they love technology, which is cool, um, but they underestimate how important it is to, to continue to be a human being and to bring the human aspects of what we do into IT. You know, at the end of the day, uh, unless you're a hobbyist or you're in your basement doing this on your own, you, um, you, you have to, to be good at interacting with people. And there's no hiding from that. You have to be good at it. So if you're not good at interacting with people, then no matter what career you choose, you're still not going to be successful. So I tell people to make sure that you, uh, 
you invest in not just the tech skills, but also understand that the people skills are equally important. You have to um, you have to invest in yourself in developing that side of things also, because most jobs you're not going to get because of, unless they give you a technical assessment and that it, and that's it. Most jobs you're not going to get unless you talk to actual human beings and convince them of who you are. And then there's culture fit. And there's all these other things that go well beyond your tech skills. If you can't um, have those kinds of conversations, then you're probably going to, to have a very low ceiling. Did you, well, you were Switzerland always. So easy for you, <laughs> you know, easy for you. Why well, is there, a, have you, have you coached any people successfully through um, people skills? I guess we could throw them into a room for two days and make them read the Pearl, Man's Search for Meaning, Crucial Conversations, yeah. How to Read a Book. That sounds amazing. We might have to do that. But um, Yeah, it's really simple. Be nice to people. And when you think you're, you're, um, you have an urge to not be nice to people, take a deep breath and then come back and then be nice to people. If you can just, if you can just be nice to people and be generally respectful, it solves an awful lot of problems. And it comes across in, in a variety of ways. Um, you know, IT people get a bad rap with good reason because sometimes they don't, um, you know, they, they get very passionate about things outside of, of just the basic human, human interaction that's occurring. You have to make sure that uh, if you look at and, and what I do is I look at, at the people that I really admire and say, what do they do? Mm-hmm. There's very few, very admirable people that you'll find that are, mm. that are nasty to other people mm. or that are disrespectful or that have. Um, bad things to say to people or, or, or get involved in sort of the water cooler stuff. I mean, they usually keep their nose clean and they usually um, are respected for that. So if, mm. if you're going to, if you're going to want to get to the very top of the top, uh, assume the best and, and let people disappoint you, not the other way around. I love it. Be nice to people. Solves a lot of problems. Yeah. Being Simple, nice to people, right? being nice to people solves a lot of IT problems. Wow. That's mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when it comes to technology, be. there's usually 15 different ways to solve a problem, but uh, a lot of times it's the people involved that, that get in the way of actually solving them. So, um, you know, and you got these late nights, the servers down, the difference between having a high performing <laughs> team and not a high performing team is often yeah, how, how well are they going to get together on low sleep when they're really hungry? Mm. Mm. So true. Thank you so much. Of course.